Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of elder abuse and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. At their cores, caretakers are essentially good people. The work is physically and emotionally exhausting and requires such patience and generosity that we often just assume their character is unimpeachable. But that's not always the case. Take Amy Archer Gilligan, an early pioneer in the care industry. She took vulnerable elders into her home, providing shelter to people who had no one else. The people around her thought her a saint. Sister Amy, they called her. But Amy wasn't from heaven. No, she came from somewhere else entirely. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we discuss how Amy Archer Gilligan went from small-town girl to enterprising businesswoman and suspected serial killer. Next week, we'll discuss how the wrong choice of victim brought an end to Amy's spree once and for all. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. Ready to find your next favorite podcast? Spotify makes it easier than ever to discover new favorites by previewing short audio clips before committing to a full listen. You can even watch some podcasts with video or just keep playing audio in the background. It's everything you want in one app. Music, podcasts, and audiobooks across any device. Play anytime, anywhere, any way you'd like with Spotify. Try today. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. In the late 1700s, Litchfield, Connecticut seemed poised to become a vibrant, bustling city. 
The Industrial Revolution was hitting its stride. Factories in places like Hartford and Windsor manufactured jobs as quickly as they did goods, drawing people from rural areas to growing cities. Unfortunately, Litchfield was not a major factory town compared to other New England cities. Much of the community was built on small, family-run operations. By 1867, industrial growth had slowed, and the population shrank to just over 3,000. That's when James and Mary Kennedy Duggan welcomed their daughter, Amy. For a young child, Litchfield probably wasn't that bad of a place to live. While sources vary on the exact number, Amy grew up with at least four siblings on a somewhat isolated homestead in the beautiful Connecticut countryside. Though it's likely things weren't all roses. Raising a large family in a town with limited job prospects must have been a struggle for Amy's parents. We don't know whether either of them worked outside of the home or what they might have done to make a living, but with such a large family and one of the most attractive homes in the area, money was probably tight. Though Amy's parents likely did their best to shield her and her siblings from their worries, even perceived financial stress can have a significant impact on a child's development. Before we continue with a discussion of Amy's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. The family's money problems are something a kid has no control over. According to researchers from New York University, this can lead to a host of behavioral issues that may manifest at the time or even later in the child's life. These effects are seen particularly in girls, who often develop anxiety or depression as a result of internalizing parental stress. It also puts them at a higher risk of social dysfunction and aggressive behavior in the future. Again, we don't know for sure what Amy's family financial situation was, but many people in rural areas were struggling at the time, so it feels fair to assume her family was no different. Still, despite any hardships she faced, we know Amy attended the country school in the small district of Milton. Though education for women and girls wasn't exactly a priority for most of society at the time, the area where Amy grew up was kind of progressive on that front. In fact, it was home to one of the first academies for women. But Amy's family probably couldn't afford tuition at such an establishment, and because most country schools at the time only went to eighth grade, Amy was likely back home by the time she was 14, helping run the homestead. Around 18, the pressure would have been on for her to find a husband, but that was easier said than done for a couple of reasons. First of all, the pickings were pretty slim out in the country. And secondly, it's unlikely that Amy's parents would have had much time or energy left over to put into matchmaking for their daughters. And finally, Amy was apparently not considered very attractive. She was tiny, only five foot three and a slim 110 pounds, which would have worked in her favor. Victorians loved a small woman. Intelligence flashed in her small, dark eyes, set deep in her round face. Her full cheeks could have read as cute and friendly, but Amy almost never smiled. And at that time, if a woman insisted on being smart, she had better be nice to make up for it. Unfortunately, Amy hadn't gotten the hang of that balance yet. So if a husband wasn't going to be an option, 
the least she could do was find work and contribute to the household. There, too, her choices were limited. Teaching and nursing were two respectable professions for an intelligent, unmarried woman of the time. Luckily for Amy, a training school for teachers in the state was just 30 miles from home. In her early 20s, she enrolled in and attended the State Normal School in New Britain. 30 miles might not seem like a long way to commute these days, but this was the 1800s, so Amy likely would have had to move away from home to go to school. Compared to the quiet, tiny town she grew up in, New Britain must have seemed like a big city, and the shift would have been jarring, to say the least. But ultimately, Amy was successful in her studies. After graduating, she moved back home and worked as a schoolteacher in two local districts. And it was around this time that romance finally came into her life in the form of James Henry Archer. We don't know the when or where of how the pair met, but we do know they were married in November of 1896, when Amy was 29, slightly older than the average bride. By the turn of the century, the couple had welcomed their first and only child, a daughter named Mary. By this stage, Amy would have been expected to quit her teaching position, and that's if she hadn't already. Most schools didn't allow women to teach after they got married, let alone once they had kids. So with Amy out of work and limited jobs available in Litchfield, James started looking for work in the surrounding cities. In 1901, the young family relocated to an area near Hartford, the state capital, and though the money was likely better, city housing was expensive. But as fate would have it, Amy and James crossed paths with John D. Seymour, a prominent businessman and widower who lived in Newington, a few miles south of Hartford. In exchange for the family's room and board, Amy agreed to be Mr. Seymour's caretaker. I should point out here that Amy told Mr. Seymour that she was a nurse and that she'd trained at Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan. And with that tiny lie, Amy secured her very first patient, and her arrival at his house signaled a bit of an exodus. When the archers moved in with Mr. Seymour, his few remaining family members moved away. The reasons for this are a little odd, but they boil down to a sense of responsibility. Elder care facilities as we think of them today didn't really exist in the early 1900s. Up until then, older relatives would move in with younger ones to be cared for as they aged. Back then, multi-generational houses were very common. But with the Industrial Revolution, young people flocked to cities, following the promise of better financial luck. This left many people, especially those in more rural areas, anxious about who would take care of them when they got older. They were basically left with two options. The first was to move to a poor farm, also known as an almshouse. These were self-sustaining homesteads, which were funded by county governments, so the quality of life one could expect there depended on the resources of the surrounding community. Those unfortunate enough to live in places that couldn't afford to run a poor farm most likely found themselves in asylums. These were generally terrible places where all manner of societies unwanted were locked away. But thanks to Amy, Mr. Seymour was able to stay in his home, comfortable and cared for through his final years until he died of pneumonia in 1904. 
After Mr. Seymour passed, the Archers arranged to rent the property from his estate so they didn't have to move again. It was way more house than the small family needed, but caring for Mr. Seymour had given Amy an idea. Whether she had truly enjoyed taking care of her late charge or not, Amy's entrepreneurial mind lit up. She decided to open a care facility for the elderly, a place where she would provide people with a nice place to live out their days, where their needs would be met by someone more like family than warden. Amy's idea was even more successful than she hoped. When she opened the doors of the Archer private home, it very quickly filled with residents. By November of 1906, Amy had six full-time residents aged from 79 to 95. James even began to help her manage the flourishing new business. Life was going well for the Archers. Until a year later, when Mr. Seymour's estate announced that they'd sold the house. Very suddenly in need of a new home, James and Amy decided to look in nearby Windsor, which was slightly larger than Newington. With an economy built on wool and paper mills, as well as profitable tobacco farms, Windsor had the good luck of being less than 10 miles from the big city of Hartford, so its industries hadn't suffered the same fate of those in places like Litchfield. It was a thriving small town full of hardworking people, which made it the ideal place for the archers to restart their business. They quickly found a beautiful brick house, complete with a covered porch and white picket fence. The property was close to downtown Windsor, but secluded enough to feel like a quiet country oasis. As a bonus, it was larger than their last place and could easily accommodate up to 20 residents. In 1907, James and Amy secured a mortgage for $4,500 and immediately opened the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids. As with their home in Newington, it didn't take long for the rooms to fill up. As business picked up, Amy kept up her story that she was a nurse. She also made plenty of friends in the community, building up her reputation as a kind Christian woman. Unsurprisingly, the townspeople warmly welcomed Amy and her family. After all, providing elder care was a terrific service to the community, and anyone who dedicated themselves to that type of work was surely a good person. Amy and her business seemed like such a blessing to the people of Windsor, but you know what they say, nothing good lasts forever. Up next, a disturbing report hits the papers, and Amy's reputation takes a hit. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and the house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results, go deeper inside four affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with Party Fowls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. 
There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I slash Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1907, 40-year-old Amy Archer owned and operated one of the first privately owned elder care facilities in the New England area, the Archer Home for Elderly People and Chronic Invalids. Living with her husband and daughter in Windsor, Connecticut, she was a well-known and respected member of her community. After all, she was doing work no one else wanted to do, taking care of people who had no one else. It was God's work. In fact, she earned the nickname Sister Amy because she carried her Bible with her everywhere. But it wasn't just her piety that inspired locals. Working women were rare in the middle class, and working mothers were almost unheard of. Not only was Amy employed, she ran the business alongside her husband. This made her an important figure to more than just the Christian women of her community. Incredibly, Amy, who was famously unlikable in her youth, had managed to endear herself to many. Residents at the Archer home described her as grandmotherly, even though she was significantly younger than most of them. Much like the house she ran, she gave off a homey, non-threatening vibe. Like Amy, the home was simple but comfortable. Residents spent time relaxing in the well-furnished parlor and eating meals together in the dining room. Those who could help with chores often did, since it was just Amy and her husband James keeping the place running. To complete the Rockwellian picture, the archer's daughter Mary, a gifted pianist, would often hold concerts in the evenings. According to most reports, it was a perfectly comfortable and lovely place to while away your golden years. Of course, as it was a home for the sick and elderly, residents passed from time to time, and it seemed like Amy was devastated by each loss. Locals were touched by how she often sent flowers to surviving family and even paid the funeral costs. Interestingly, Amy was often contractually obligated to do those things thanks to the agreements she made with her residents when they moved in. But the townspeople didn't know that and saw pure generosity of spirit. But even though she had widespread support, there were some who didn't think Amy was the fine, upstanding citizen she claimed to be. Within two short years, whispers started that the Archer home wasn't as great as it seemed. Lucy Durand, a resident at the Archer home, apparently wrote to the Connecticut Humane Society to complain about conditions in the home. In response, the society sent an agent to investigate in July of 1909. Windsor's town selectman, who served as the town's chief administrative authority, went along too, just to check things out for himself. Amy guided them through the house like a gracious host. Lucy had reported that she was being abused and forced to live in unsanitary conditions. 
But as they looked around, the agent and selectmen didn't think things were as bad as she made them sound. The agent ordered the archers to make a few improvements, including adding a window to improve ventilation in one room. But other than that, the matter seems to have been dropped. Well, it was dropped by everyone but Amy. In her rage, she wrote letters to Lucy's family, accusing her of deliberately tarnishing the home's reputation. She even went so far as to question Lucy's sanity. She eventually hired several doctors to examine the woman, who seemed to agree with Amy. Their diagnoses were all that Amy needed to have Lucy declared insane and committed to the state hospital. And that was that. Though the incident blew over quickly, it left Amy's once stellar reputation somewhat tarnished. But that didn't seem to bother her as much as it probably should have. Beds were still easy to fill. In fact, not long after Lucy was sent away, a new resident took her place. Teresa McClintock had a physical disability and had recently been discharged from the hospital. Taking care of her was too much for her daughter, Narcissa, so when she heard of the Archer home, it sounded like the answer to her prayers. Teresa moved in in November of 1909, but about a week later, Narcissa got a letter from her mom fussing about the place. At first, Narcissa thought she was being dramatic. Teresa had always been a bit of a complainer. But just days after the first letter came, another followed. Teresa was begging her to come see for herself what was going on. Teresa insisted she was being neglected. Nothing was being washed, not her clothes or the bedding. She'd been placed in a room on the second floor where she was basically trapped because of her physical limitations. On top of all that, Teresa couldn't make it to the shared bathroom on her own. So Amy put a commode in her room, but it was rarely emptied and stunk up the small, poorly ventilated room. Narcissa couldn't believe it was truly as bad as her mother was making it sound. Amy had seemed like such a kind Christian woman, and besides, Teresa had only been at the Archer home for 12 days. Though she was pretty sure her mom just wanted attention, Narcissa made the trip to Windsor, but the visit did nothing to put her mind at ease. Clutching her daughter's hands, Teresa told Narcissa that no matter how long she called for help, she rarely got it. On the occasions Amy finally did answer, she'd scream at Teresa for being a nuisance and tell her to just shut up. All of her requests were being denied. Even simple tasks like something warm to drink or a hot water bottle to warm her bed. Amy raged at her for asking for anything. Teresa looked around, making sure no one was listening, before she leaned close to her daughter and said that she was deeply afraid of Amy. Narcissa was horrified by what she heard, and furious. They were paying good money for Teresa to be cared for, not neglected and abused. So she took Teresa home immediately. But they couldn't just let go of what had happened. They had been played. Even worse, Amy was free to keep up her scam. So they decided to do something about it. In December of 1909, they sued Amy for $5,000. And of course, the story hit the papers. 
Amy quickly and vehemently denied these latest accusations. She claimed that Narcissa had lied about Teresa's true condition before moving her into the home. She also insinuated that Teresa was, quote, addicted to the use of intoxicating liquors. Calling someone a drunk is a far cry from having them committed, like Amy had done to Lucy, but it was perhaps a ploy meant to have the same effect. A 2006 study published in the Journal of Physiology and Pharmacology suggested that a high percentage of people believe that one should be ashamed of being an alcoholic and that they wouldn't trust someone being treated for addiction. It's possible Amy was counting on this prejudice and misunderstanding of addiction to convince people to see things her way. But the thing was, locals already seemed inclined to believe Sister Amy. The people of Windsor didn't want to believe the horrible stories could be true. The Amy they knew would never be capable of abusing her residents, but there were a few who thrilled at the idea that she might not be as saintly as she seemed. Battle lines were being drawn. As the town took sides, Amy suffered another personal hit. Her husband, James, died suddenly at the age of 51. The death certificate listed Bright's disease, a chronic inflammation of the kidneys, as the cause. This detail caught the attention of Carlin Gosley, a part-time reporter for the Hartford Current. He'd been friends with the archers since they moved to Windsor and had been reluctant to believe the accusations against them. But with the news of James's death, Carlin, who also went by the name Carl, let his journalist instincts take over. Even at the time, people didn't die of Bright's disease quickly. As far as Carl knew, James had been a generally healthy guy for his age. At the very least, his medical records were thin for someone who died of a chronic condition. The more questions he asked, the more Carl felt compelled to dig, but he tried to ignore his growing suspicions. After all, Amy was still his friend, and she had enough to deal with for the moment. With James gone, Amy had to face the lawsuit alone. But before the charge could go to trial, both parties agreed to settle the matter. In exchange for dropping the lawsuit, Amy retracted the things she'd said about Teresa being an alcoholic and paid the McClintocks an undisclosed sum of money. Whatever the amount, it was enough to put Amy in serious financial trouble. Along with her reputation, business had taken a hit during the lawsuit. So clutching at straws, she tried to recover her standing in town by blaming everything on her late husband. Despite, or maybe because, James wasn't around to defend himself, Amy spread the story that he had been the careless caretaker. She would never mistreat one of her residents in the way the McClintocks claimed. They were practically family to her. But James, God rest his soul, could be mean sometimes. The ploy seemed to work. Pretty soon, applications were picking back up and beds were being filled. But just as things seemed like maybe they were going to turn around, Amy faced yet another problem. By now, Carl Gosley's curious questions had turned into a full-blown investigation. There were few in the small town who didn't know about his side project, and it was stirring up the rumor mill. After James's death, Carl decided to review the Windsor obituaries. What he found there alarmed him. 
The Archer home had lost 12 residents in the few years since it had opened, and the deaths increased exponentially around 1910, the year after the McClintock lawsuit. Not only that, but perhaps on a hunch, Carl looked into Amy's purchases at the local drugstore and found she'd been buying suspicious amounts of arsenic for years. At the time, arsenic was more than just a poison. It was used for a few things around the home, specifically for pest control. But for that, a little always went a long way. Given the amount that Amy was buying, either the Archer house had a major and persistent pest problem, or Amy was using the substance for some other sinister purpose. And Carl Gosley had an awful hunch which of those two options it was. Coming up, Amy finds love again and makes sure it doesn't last. Now back to the story. In 1910, 43-year-old Amy Archer was in trouble. She just didn't know it yet. Though she'd fended off a scandalous lawsuit about her elderly care home, a local reporter was digging into the story and had made some interesting discoveries. Carl Gosley was suspicious about the amount of arsenic Amy purchased from the local hardware store in Windsor, Connecticut. And in his digging, he found that Amy's late husband, James, had left a few loose ends in the form of unpaid taxes. So he passed the info along to his brother, who worked for the city. That's why in May of 1911, Amy received a letter from the city with an unexpected and unwelcome tax bill. Writing back, Amy insisted there was a mistake. She said she had paid every bill she received since James's death. Furthermore, she wrote that she couldn't imagine who would even think of taxing a home like hers. The last thing Amy needed was to owe yet more money. She still had a mortgage and was barely keeping up with the day-to-day -day cost of keeping the home running. Whether it was household supplies and maintenance, food, or her patient's medical bills, money seemed to flow out faster than it came in. It could hardly have been a secret that Amy was struggling, which is what made her rates at the home so puzzling. For between seven and $10 a week, residents were promised all their needs would be met. But there was another, even more enticing payment plan, a lifetime contract. Residents were guaranteed the same care just for a one-off fee of $1,000, which would be around $30,000 in 2021. It was a great way to lure in potential residents, but as a sustainable business model, it kind of sucked. You see, when someone chose the lifetime contract, it meant that Amy got a hefty lump sum added to her ledger, but she wouldn't get paid again until that bed opened up. Depending on how healthy the resident in question was, that could take years. That meant Amy's profits entirely depended on turnover, and Carl Gosley found that fact highly suspicious. And given the alarming amount of arsenic Amy bought, it was enough to make him wonder if she was speeding up the process to fatten her bank account. Of course, suspicion wasn't enough to accuse someone of murder, especially not someone of Amy's standing in the community and not someone with a clear vindictive streak. But he didn't need to say anything about murder to draw Amy's ire. 
When she found out that Carl was behind her latest tax bill, Amy knew she needed to strike back. She began telling friends and neighbors that he was forming a conspiracy against her. She told them she was sure she was falling victim to a modern-day witch hunt. Carl was trying to convince the townspeople she was no good, and it didn't take long for rumors to start swirling that Amy was poisoning her residents. But not everyone believed what they heard. Carl had made some compelling discoveries, but some just weren't willing to accept what he said. For instance, Amy kept most of the town's women in her corner. She was too important to them to consider turning on over speculation, especially speculation fueled by men. The women of the town looked up to Amy as a beacon of what they or their daughters might aspire to one day. Maybe they too could become successful businesswomen in a world run by men. Amy represented their hope that there might be a life for women beyond their husbands. In addition to this proto-feminist support, Amy was still championed by many for being a stalwart Christian example. Many locals, including Amy herself, still proclaimed she was doing God's work. Despite this intense opposition, Carl had enough people on his side to keep him going, including the editor of the Hartford Current. They agreed there was a story, and they would stop at nothing to uncover it. By 1912, Carl had been investigating Amy for two years, but hadn't come up with anything more than circumstantial evidence. The rate of resident turnover seemed suspiciously high, but it was an old folks' home. But then there was the way Amy handled the many resident deaths. It wasn't unusual for the local doctor or undertaker to receive a call in the dead of night, request to have dead bodies removed to the morgue. If anyone asked, Amy said this was just hygienic and good business. She knew her residents would be deeply upset by a dead body in the house. Still, it wasn't the speed of the disposal that unnerved Carl, but the fact that Amy also demanded expedited embalming. See, other than pest control, arsenic was also a popular ingredient in 19th century embalming fluid. Amy had been buying suspiciously large amounts of arsenic from the local drugstore for some time. So if she was using it to poison her tenants, having the body embalmed would be an excellent way of covering her tracks. Even with this many highly suspicious puzzle pieces, Carl couldn't take his case further without hard evidence. He desperately needed a witness. But in April of 1912, a different story dominated headlines and busied reporters. The sinking of the Titanic was a massive international tragedy that fascinated readers for months. So for a time, Carl put the Amy Archer investigation on ice. Despite this welcome reprieve, Amy was struggling. Without a husband, she had to manage the business and the house essentially on her own. Her 14-year-old daughter, Mary, helped from time to time, but she was also enrolled at the Campbell's School for Girls, which wasn't cheap. Amy knew how important education could be for a girl, so she was determined to find a way to cover the tuition, plus the cost of private music lessons. All in all, it added several hundred dollars to her expenses, which was money she just couldn't afford. 
In short, finance was a constant source of stress and anxiety for Amy. The pressure was on to draw potential residents into the home, so she started playing a little fast and loose with her contracts. That April, she signed a lifetime agreement with a woman from nearby New Britain, agreeing to accept $700 plus the woman's monthly pension she received for being a soldier's widow. After that, she signed a contract with a different resident for only $500. She was desperate to fill beds, and she was willing to make sacrifices to do it. Because Amy had been struggling financially for so long, her mental resources were stretched thinner than ever, and it affected her judgment. In 2010, economist Dean Spears studied the effects of poverty on impatient and impulsive behavior. He found that because being poor typically adds a level of difficulty to everyday decisions, that stress can drain a person's cognitive control. But not every one of Amy's business decisions was bad. In September of 1912, she landed a rather large fish in the form of Franklin Andrews, who for some reason paid $2,500 cash upon moving in. Why he paid such a large price isn't clear, but Amy allegedly asked incoming residents for bank statements and a list of assets, so he might have gotten the you-can-afford-it price. 59-year-old Franklin had spent the last couple of years bouncing between relatives, worried about becoming a burden. He had a physical disability, most likely caused by a case of congenital dislocation of the hip when he was young. But aside from some trouble walking, he was an otherwise healthy guy. It was a huge relief to Amy to have a mostly able-bodied man around the house again. Over his first year at the home, he picked up all the slack left in her late husband's absence. But Amy, now 46, had other needs that Franklin didn't satisfy. Luckily for her, another strapping single gentleman knocked on her door soon enough. Michael Gilligan, a 57-year-old divorcee, had been a farmer and a volunteer fireman for most of his life. But now, his five children were grown and living their own lives, and the last thing Michael wanted was to spend the rest of his days alone. He went to the Archer home looking for companionship, and he found it with the home's proprietress. The attraction between Michael and Amy was immediate and mutual, but Amy did her best to remain professional at first. As it happened, Michael, like Franklin, was also a man of means. At the time, he was worth about $5,000, and to Amy, that was a truly irresistible quality in a man. She was on her best behavior around Franklin, acting warm and kind towards everyone whenever he was around. And for his part, Franklin was impressed that such a young woman was running a business on her own. You see, Amy told him she was 39, shaving more than a few years off her actual age. She'd never been above lying to get what she wanted, and she wanted Franklin. Within weeks, a romance had blossomed. By November that year, they were married. Their neighbors were mostly happy for the newlyweds. Michael was known around Windsor as a good guy, which engendered some goodwill toward Amy, and she needed that almost as much as she needed money. 
This honeymoon phase lasted a good long while, until one night in February of 1914, when Michael came down with some kind of stomach bug. He was pale, shaking and sweating profusely when Amy called him into the kitchen to sign a will she'd had drawn up. It hardly seemed the time to bother with such things, but Amy was adamant. Whatever she said, it worked. Michael signed the will, which excluded his five grown children and left his entire estate to his Amy. By the next morning, Michael seemed to be feeling better. People saw him around town that day, looking as healthy as ever. But after dinner that night, he took a turn for the worse. His face was even paler than before. The shaking and sweating returned, and this time he was dizzy and confused as well. At some stage, a doctor stopped by and he told Amy to call him back if Michael didn't improve. As the night dragged on, he only got sicker, eventually hauling himself to the bathroom where he vomited for hours. At 2 a.m., Amy called Ralph Frost, a friend of Michael's and part-time undertaker. She told him that Michael wasn't doing so well and asked him to come to the house. When Ralph got there, he was shocked to see how sick his friend was. Michael was barely conscious and couldn't speak, and to make matters worse, Amy wasn't doing anything to help. When Ralph realized that she hadn't called the doctor, he insisted that Amy summon one immediately. But by then, it was too late. Michael Gilligan died before the doctor arrived. Word of the sudden passing astonished the townspeople of Windsor. Michael had many friends around town, and everyone was devastated by the news. Among them was reporter Carl Gosley. In his grief, he reignited his investigation into Amy. Whatever doubts he had about Amy's responsibility for the suspicious deaths at the Archer home were gone. He was going to do whatever it took to bring her down. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two. As Carl's investigation picks up attention from law enforcement, Amy makes a costly miscalculation. For more information on Amy Archer Gilligan, among our sources, we found The Devil's Rooming House by M. William Phelps, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fouls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. 
Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.